This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Today's topic about the roles of human beings in society goes back to the earliest reaches of human civilization and then ties those early times squarely to human civilization today. For thousands of years, human civilization across large parts of the world was largely based on pastoral and herding culture. People lived close to the land with very close relationships to large herds of animals. Groups of people who lived together in communities took on varying roles to contribute productively to making a society or community function well and stay safe. Today, the roles we've inherited from herding cultures are still with us. Whether you work in an office, a school, a construction company, a mine, on a cruise ship, or lead research expeditions, we have carried on the roles dating back to some of the earliest civilizations. These roles, the dominant, the leader, the sentinel, the nurturer, and the predator, are all around us every day, and you yourself are likely a mixture of all of these roles, and you likely are imbalanced to favor maybe two or three of them, while neglecting to hone your skills in the others. The conversation today with author Linda Kohanov will stimulate you to think about your own roles in society today. Linda Kohanov is the founder of EponaQuest Worldwide, which was established to explore the healing potential of working with horses. Linda teaches internationally on subjects including leadership, social intelligence, and stress reduction. She is the author of the brand new book from New World Library entitled The Five Roles of the Master Herder, a Revolutionary Model for Socially Intelligent Leadership. She is also the author of the books The Tao of Equus and The Power of the Herd. I love this conversation and I had so much to ask Linda from my own experiences as a teacher and about the roles that I use well and not well in my own classroom every day. I hope you all enjoy this chat as much as I had having it. Check out Linda's newest book, Five Roles of the Master Herder, for a deep dive on the topics discussed in this episode. Without further delay, I bring you Linda Kohanov. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I am here today with my guest, Linda Kohanov. Linda, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to our talk today. I'm curious if you can just go ahead and introduce yourself and your work a little bit for the audience because you have quite an amazing array of things that you are interested in, and I think that everybody would love to hear about it. For over 20 years now, I've been working with horses to teach people advanced human development skills from everything from leadership and parenting to advanced emotional and social intelligence skills, creativity, and people don't have to know anything about horses or even care that much about horses to come and learn these skills. I've also written five books on what horses and other animals to teach have to teach humans. And my latest is my fifth book, The Five Roles of a Master Herder, a revolutionary model for socially intelligent leadership. And and that's what that's about. And we are here today to talk all about that book. I am so excited. I've read it and I love it. And it's such a neat little change of pace for me as for what I normally do on this show. So I'm really grateful that you're taking the time today to talk to me about your new book. So In the five roles of a master herder, in the very back, you have this fantastic professional assessment that anybody can take, and it tells you a lot about your 
um, skills in the professional workplace and what you're good at and then things that you tend to maybe shy away from. And I took the assessment today. Can I tell you what my results are? I can't wait to hear it. Okay, so you mentioned that things that fall within three points of each other indicate the tendency to be balanced in those roles. So my three balanced roles, I got a 43 for a leader, a 40 for a nurturer companion, and a 41 for a sentinel. That's a nice combination. Yeah. So my my ones that I don't have very high scores are, are a 25 for a dominant and a 15 for a predator, which is okay. very low. Yes, that pretty much means that um, every time an option came up in terms of responding in the predatory role, you said you weren't likely to respond that way. So, you, I mean, of a, a 15 is near a zero, actually, in terms of how often you would be willing to use that role. So as so I'm a high school teacher, as you know, um, what does that tell you? Like what what kind of like predictions could you make about what my classroom issues would look like as far as like things that I'm really good at and things that I may be not so good at? Well, I really like the combination of having pretty even roles in terms of the leader, the nurture companion, and the sentinel. Um, A lot of times with leaders, they tend to be visionaries. And if they overemphasize that role, they can get way too far out in front of others. And they can just kind of expect people to catch up and, and get their act together and, you know, support the vision. So, you know, as a teacher, I would hope that you can swing back around and educate people and support them and find out what they need to learn the vision that you're presenting in your classroom. So I like the fact that the leader and the nurturer companion are very close together, if not, like I say, three points away from each other, you're pretty much balanced in those areas. And I really like that the sentinel role is very high because the sentinel is the one that kind of stands back a little bit and takes a look at group dynamics in relation to the larger economic or cultural environment. And I think that as a teacher, having good sentinel skills can be really important in terms of looking at how the overall group is coming along in their lessons and and also how what you're teaching is helping them to become the best people they can be in the culture in which we currently exist. The sentinel also, you know, in terms of a parent or teacher role, the sentinel is watching for errant behavior and hopefully can step in. Um, with that information before things get out of control. So I imagine that your your classroom is pretty warm, inspiring, um, and also realistic about what's going on. If you ever find yourself in Missouri, it would be awesome for you to come in and sit in the back of my room and watch and see if all of those things actually play out. And my sense is that they do. So I don't think that my results were wrong. So what do you think I might struggle with as a um, without with that very low predator role? Well, in terms of when you take the the assessment, the assessment is designed for you to take it with a particular professional situation in mind because sometimes your job description dictates um, your use of certain roles. And so, you know, as a teacher, I would hope you have a pretty low score in the predator role because the predator role is the part that, you know, calls things that are no longer working or that are out of balance. Um, And as a teacher, generally you're looking for ways to include the students and serve the students rather than just simply expel the students. Um, But, you know, in terms of the predator role can also be used to um, cut out or call belief systems or ideas that are no longer serving yourself or the group. So I would hope that in other contexts you have a pretty good grasp of the predator role. Um, in terms of protecting children um, as, a, as a parent or teacher, you would be using um, the predator role to um, keep out people out of the social system who could be hurtful to your, your group, your family, or your classroom. Um, but I would imagine that that's also handled by you know, the other professionals, the principals and parents in the system. So you probably don't have much call to use the predator role. And... If I saw a teacher with a really high predator role, I would be worried. 
Whereas in other kinds of situations, let's say you work in the corporate world and your job is in acquisitions and mergers, you would probably have a very high predator score because it's your job to go into a situation where two companies are merging and decide which people you may need to lay off because all of a sudden you have two accounting departments and, you know, um, a lot of redundancy. So you would have to be able to use the predator role to thoughtfully look at what areas do we need to cut or trim down in order for the organization to be successful financially. I love that. I think that I'm uh, definitely within the right sort of realm as far as my scores come out because thinking about being in like an acquisitions and mergers environment after everything you just said, it's terrifying to even comprehend or even consider being in that kind of world. So I'm actually kind of grateful that I've taken the life path that I have. It's really interesting. And the predator role is, if it's done well, it's used thoughtfully to keep life in balance with the available resources. Um, we have situations in which people and businesses and certain kinds of political organizations um, overuse, over-identify with the predator role. And you know, that's a problem in nature. If you have too many predators running rabid through the landscape, killing indiscriminately, it's a problem. Right. So the premise of your new book, The Five Roles of a Master Herder from New World Library, you have a series of roles that we've just discussed in pastoral societies. And I kind of want to travel back in time with you for a moment. But before we do that, I'm curious if you can just explain to the audience, what is a master herder? Well, I came up with that term to describe a certain kind of person who is a really accomplished, socially intelligent leader. And I, I came across this accidentally when I was researching my fourth book, The Power of the Herd. And I was looking at a variety of forms of leadership across cultures and throughout time to, to study the role of leaders and different kinds of leaders and how effective they are. And I came across these nomadic pastoral cultures, which we don't really have much of in, in, uh, in the United States, right. but nomadic pastoralists are people who merge a tribe with a herd of animals and they, they don't rely on fences and they rely very little bit on restraints to move the animals. So they're moving across fenceless grazing lands and they're keeping the herd and the tribe together. And they're also dealing with animals in terms of once you start talking about horses and cattle, these animals are very powerful. They weigh at least 10, if not 15 times more than you do. And they can be very aggressive, particularly young males that haven't been socialized. And so you actually have to be very powerful to socialize these really intense adolescent stallions and bulls and you know even mares and cows that are protecting their young can be very aggressive and so you have to be able to stand up to them you have to be able to teach them how to use their immense physical power appropriately and these people also in order to keep the the herd together without fences, they have to build the trust of the animals. So they can't bully them. They have to actually be able to use assertiveness to stand up to aggressive herd members while also building trust and creating a, an environment that the animals want to stay in. Because otherwise, if you make them too angry or you scare them, they just run off. And without fences, there's not a whole lot of recourse you have. And so what I found was that these tribes learned a really amazing form of leadership that involves five roles of power and social influence because they have to deal with predators and changing climates. They have to protect and nurture the group while keeping these massive, sometimes aggressive animals together. And to achieve this goal, the phenomenon of the master herder emerges. And I'm not using this term in terms of master slave. I'm using this ter in terms of mastering five rules. And I'm not using herder in the sense of you just herd them around, you just herd mindless animals around. That's actually a misconception. When you're working with herds of animals that are free, if you push them too hard or scare them too much or intimidate them, they scatter and run off. And you can spend hours trying to bring them all back together again. So a master herder, I would say, is 
a strong, compassionate, well-balanced leader who's more than a leader. They also act as a caretaker and a guardian. So how old are these roles? Are we talking about like thousands of years back to like the earliest human beings? What we're really talking about here is millions of years old because the her- the tribes that herd animals actually learned from the social structure of the animals themselves. And so one of the things that these master herders in traditional pastoral cultures understand that we have lost in our sedentary city-based cultures is the fact that in herds of large animals like horses and cattle, the leader animal and the dominant animal are often two different animals, and that they perform certain goals that when used in balance, help the the herd not just survive, but thrive. And that they also spend a lot of time, the animals themselves engaged in the nurturer companion role. And the animals themselves also trade the sentinel role. They act as sentinels for each other. The interesting thing too about large herbivores like horses and cattle is that they use all four of these roles, the leader, the dominant, the nurturer companion, and the sentinel in their non-predatory forms. They actually are not predators. They don't engage in predatory behavior. And they can even protect the herd without engaging in in predatory behavior. And so when humans started to collaborate with these large animals, and back when they were starting to, quote, unquote, domesticate them, they really had to collaborate because they didn't have fences and restraints strong enough back then. They actually had to merge with the herd and learn from the animals and, and install themselves as a part of that social structure. But humans are also omnivores. We do have a side that is predatory, but we are also omnivores. So we have the teeth of a vegetarian, but we have the eyes forward that are associated with lions and wolves. And so humans have these Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde moments where Mm -hmm. as omnivores, we sometimes maybe overuse the predator role and become over aggressive and over opportunistic. Whereas, um, you know, among empowered herds of large animals, they were using the other four roles in their herds long before humans were sophisticated enough to come along and try to merge with them. So I am really fascinated by some of the research that you did into ancient pastoral society. Um, And I don't know a whole lot about human beings that lived so, so long ago. So are there any examples that spring to mind of like ancient pastoral societies that you most enjoyed studying? Almost every culture has some nomadic pastoralists as a part of their early elements of their culture. And so you see nomadic pastoralists also in all the major religions. There were nomadic pastoralists and still are who are Buddhists, like the Mongolians, the Mongolian pastoral cultures. Um, There are nomadic pastoral cultures um, in the Muslim traditions. Um, They tend to be African tribes like the Fulani who move with large cattle, but they they adopted a Muslim religion. Um, The Judeo-Christian Bible is the story of a group of nomadic pastoralists who were over several thousand years encountering the increasingly aggressive and highly influential city-based cultures that initially, like the pharaohs of ancient Egypt, would enslave others. And so our Judeo-Christian base in Western culture is actually a nomadic pastoral culture where when people have images of Jesus holding a lamb and being a shepherd and saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, what they're really talking about is nomadic pastoralists who are have a form of socially intelligent power that in the context of those cultures that you were living in, the Bible actually makes more sense. Part of the incongruencies that we see in um, people who study the Bible now and then act in aggressive predatory ways, um, this is a result of a nomadic pastoral culture being adopted and increasingly adopting sedentary, city-based, highly predatory forms of behavior. Okay, so now that we know that there's this ancient role of pastoralism in society and that we have sort of uh, skewed it a little bit in our modern sedentary lives, um, what are some more modern examples of um, 
when a person misuses some of these roles in modern society. So like, what do these five roles look like in society today in like an, like a normal office building? Sure. They, um, you know, every, everybody is already good at one or two of these at the very least. Um, and so all five of these roles you see in, in modern cultures, it's just that, People in sedentary cultures um, have lost connection with how to um, move with large, powerful animals without fences. And so as a result, we've engaged in a kind of dominant submission, command, control culture that um, is starting to unravel now that we have the modern ability to fly wherever we want or we have the ability to get information from the Internet or, you know, if you get really upset at work and you're a talented person, you can quit and you can go home and you can come up with an idea and raise money online and order supplies to the door and start a multi-million dollar corporation in the corner of a basement or garage. And so what's happening now is that among really talented, empowered people, the old dominant submission command control hierarchy that was um, really common for thousands of years in our city-based culture is starting to unravel because, um, and people are becoming more nomadic. And so these ancient skills of beginning to understand how and when to use all five rules for the good of the herd and the tribe and how to keep people together and focus when you're also dealing with empowered people who could just wander up and do their own thing if they want. These nomadic pastoral skills are suddenly relevant now because our culture itself is giving us more opportunities to move around and do whatever we want. But if you look at um, people who over-identify with certain roles, they have certain kinds of predictable behavior patterns. So someone who over-identifies with the predator role compulsively uses others' vulnerabilities against them for personal gain. And so you can have a highly predatory colleague at a school. You know, it's hard to admit skill deficiencies or ask for help because of somebody who's overemphasizing this role. Their tendency is to degrade, fire, or take advantage of you, even if it's simply that you need additional training to excel. Um, on the upside, people talented in the predator role, they can make tough decisions during lean times. And so as in nature, they keep life in balance with the available resources. But those who overemphasize this role have a more extreme survival of the fittest, kill or be killed attitude. And they can prey on coworkers and even the company to achieve self-serving goals. And they can really be quite sneaky about it, like a lion stalking a zebra in high grass. So sometimes you can also have a person who has skills in the nurture companion role, but they're using it for predatory purposes. Sexual predators who seek out children who are loners and who invite them in their houses and offering offer them comfort and support in order to engage in predatory sexual behavior, that's a that's a predatory nurture companion. A predatory nurture companion also shows up in people who reach out and take care of elderly neighbor neighbors um, and, you know, help them out and gain their trust and then eventually drain their bank accounts. So anytime you use the predator role for your own um, to thrive at others expense, basically, it is the misuse of that role. So you also mention on the flip side, that today's highly functioning companies are being more and more led by compassionate, nurturing people. So whenever you would think about like a, a corporate environment, I think that a lot of people would assume that there's some kind of dominant or predator in charge. But what you're seeing, and you mentioned in the book, is that it's the, the rise of the nurturer is changing enterprise and industry. So how is that changing the way that business is done in the world today if you have more of a compassionate nurturer leading huge companies? Well, that's a trend that we're just on the edge of seeing in very innovative companies. The vast majority of companies are still using a kind of command control, um, often a combination of a dominant and predatory mentality. Um, and I can talk hopefully more about that if, if we have time. Um, but 
some of the major business magazines have been seeing trends in large companies entering into what they call the age of nurturer, where where there is a person at the head of the company who's looking at supporting individual and group needs simultaneously and really listening to people and supporting people in getting the training they can to become the best they can be, rather than just ordering them around and causing them to submit to authority. Um, in general, if you overemphasize the nurture companion role in a competitive environment, um, you sometimes can't get very high in the company. So I would say those CEOs who are emphasizing the nurturer role or who are showing more capacity in that role are probably also really good and very balanced in the dominant role with a bit of the predator, but only to keep life in balance with available resources and probably have good sentinel skills as well. When you get nurturer companions who are promoted, let's say in like social work or nonprofits, because maybe they're really good at being a social worker and then they're promoted to a management position, they can actually be highly dysfunctional and not very effective um, because they will um, often use be conflict averse and use passive aggressive means to manipulate others into doing what they ask. And um, so really the age of nurture that they're talking about in terms of corporate groups that are showing more nurturing and companionship type behavior, the people who are successful at it are actually master herders who can engage all five roles. Oh, that's so interesting. So you can definitely be good at all five. That's such a, uh, an important point for any listener who's approaching this book is that you can notice things that you are de-emphasizing or over-emphasizing and you can think about it. And like on the flip side, as a teacher, this was a place that you would think of as being um, full of nurturer and compassionate people, um, people who want to serve children and communities and youth. So I'm really interested in how teachers can do a better job of working with youth if we consciously develop our underutilized or our non-existent roles that we have in these different roles that you mentioned. So um, how do you think that teachers could better serve young people if we purposely worked on developing all five roles? Like if we were consciously aware of it and we made a point to do it. I think teachers are some of the ones who need all five roles the most. Um, the predator role is the one you would probably use the least, but you need to know when and how to use it. Um, but for the most part, using the other four roles, the nurturer companion, the dominant, the sentinel, and the leader, if you know when and how to use all four of those roles in their non-predatory forms, you're going to be an incredibly successful teacher or parent. Because... The dominant role, for instance, we've all had teachers who overemphasize that role growing up, right? Somebody sure. who's running their classroom like a, a military establishment. And, you know, if you get an answer wrong, they, they really come after you and embarrass you. And um, so we, we do have teachers who overemphasize that role. Um, but we also have teachers who refuse to use that role. And the classroom can really fall apart. We see children who are highly manipulative of teachers who don't know when and how to use the dominant role. And um, so the dominant role, when you use it in its mature, non-predatory form, um, you need to use it to break up fights between kids. You need to use it to drive off people from the classroom who shouldn't be there. Um, you need to drive your students toward a goal or away from danger, the dominant role has a pushing and divisive form of power. So it drives groups in a certain direction and it also divides them. So when you're breaking up fights between two people, you're using the dominant role to put a stop to it. And then you have it that order everybody to sit down, you're being directive. And then you might go to the nurturer companion to start to have people hear each other and find good supportive solutions to what's going on. But the mature use of the dominant role is so important when you're dealing with children who are themselves naturally dominant. And they're everywhere. I, I meet a lot of parents who are sweet, gentle nurturer companions who then have a naturally dominant child. And they do not know how to teach this incredibly powerful person to use their power properly. And so I believe that jails are filled 
with uh, naturally dominant children who had very gentle, nurturing parents who did not know how to help these children socialize their own power. Same thing with teachers in a classroom. And so you you really have to know how to use the dominant role well and in a mature form to teach someone who's naturally dominant how to rein in their tremendous power for the good of the social group that they're in. Because, because otherwise these people turn into bullies and they can also be ostracized. And either way, it's a terribly lonely life. Yeah. Um, there are so many things in this book that are relevant for the world of education. And so every school has a an administrative staff among several principals often. And this book on the back cover, it says business and leadership and leadership in any organization matters so much. And as a leader, you also have to be on the lookout for stuff. So in a sentinel role, like what do you think principals in schools should be on the lookout for among like their staff, like in order to keep their staff happy and healthy and productive? I think the principal is in a position to watch the different styles of their employees. That includes teachers and other support staff at schools, um, because there are all these unconscious power plays that are often going on. And um, if you can't step in and, and break up a power play or a fight between two teachers soon enough, it can really affect the students and the, the entire tone of the school. And um, so you really have to see, and the sentinel role needs to see when, some, when people are in, in, in conflict um, and put a stop to it and redirect it before two people say things to each other they can never take back. And what you have is a toxic work environment that's affecting the children and that also eventually you may have to let pick one of two talented teachers and let one of them go because the system has become so toxic due to their lack of being able to get along. Um, I think that watching interpersonal difficulties and then teaching teachers how to become more balanced themselves is a really important thing. I've seen lots of passive aggressive power plays between nurturing companion teachers who are in conflict with each other and it is nasty and it is really hard to catch in its early form because it's all really quite covert. Whereas if you have a naturally dominant teacher um, interacting with other teachers or students and they they're still using the dominant role in its immature or unconscious form they can be you know very intimidating needlessly intimidating um, and they can hurt students and co-workers alike so a principal really needs to be a master herder and also paying attention to the different styles of of power and social influence that the teachers and other staff are using with each other as well as with the students do you ever lead workshops with uh, teachers out in Arizona? Oh, yes, all the time. In fact, um, we also have a, a training program where people learn how to employ this model in all kinds of different settings and teach this model to their coworkers and, and um, you know, people who are in human resources might go through the program and learn how to bring this into their company. And we have also had um, some teachers go through and not just use this in the classroom, but then start to teach this to other teachers. We actually have a teacher by the name of Charlotte Richardson in Tucson, and she and her, her principal was so um, taken with these skills that for the last three years, Charlotte has been teaching the different skills involved with the five roles of a master herder to seventh and eighth grade students in a public school in the classroom five days a week with monthly trips to the barn to exercise these activities with horses. I'm I'm so excited to to share this book and rest assured that I will be sharing this book with the leadership team in my own building um, because I think that this is so applicable to anything. And you said a few things in your last comment that really jumped out at me. And one of them is about toxicity. And so now I want to broadly look at our society for a few minutes. So we live in this age of vastly divided social communication. And I'm sure you know exactly what I'm referring to. 
I do. <laughs> so, so how can't do you can't get away from it? <laughs> no, you can't. You can't escape. We're not free from it. Um, so how do you envision this book and this model that you've put together? How can this help us with our dialogue in this interesting era that we find ourselves in? One of the things that is part of the beauty of the master herder model when I take it to any organization, whether it's nonprofit or political or educational, is that people learn how to look at the five roles and see what kind of behavior occurs when that role is overused. And um, so you can see that people who overuse the dominant role act in certain unproductive ways. And um, you don't have to take it any personally anymore. You don't have to see the person as hopelessly defective. Um, and you can see that people who overemphasize the dominant role when they interact with someone who overemphasizes the nurturer companion role, um, that there's lots of places where people simply don't understand the other person's perspective. Whereas you begin to see the strengths of each role that, that, that those people have, as well as the dysfunctions that are occurring because they overemphasize them, then you're not taking the behavior personally anymore. And you're encouraging everyone to become a mature, balanced leader in their own right. Democracy is a principle that we haven't fully engaged because people haven't been pow empowered and, and balanced enough to know how to use power effectively. We spend years learning how to become a teacher, for instance, or a rocket scientist, or, you know, um, a, a PhD educator, or a principal, or head of a company, or have some technical area of expertise, like becoming an accountant or whatever. We spend years learning those skills, and yet, how do we learn how to use power, and how do we learn how to engage in socially intelligent ways? We're expected to learn that accidentally. That's ridiculous. Um, and we're seeing the results of that now because people have all kinds of technical areas of expertise. And it, when it comes to talking to each other and trying to influence others in a productive way, you just see the craziness of the behavior out there right now. In terms of the two political parties, you see this imbalance. So with Democrats, you see an emphasis of the visionary leader role, trying to lead people toward a, a vision that's sometimes more innovative, and then also a, an, an emphasis on the nurture companion role, taking care of others. In the Republican Party, you tend to see an overemphasis of the dominant role and the predator role. And both sides are not, right now, very good at using the sentinel role. And so when you have an, a situation in which you have two parties that in both instances become highly out of balance, you get tremendous amounts of confusion and conflict. What we really need now are leaders who understand how and when to use all five rules for the good of the culture as well as the good of the individual. Linda, I think you need to sit down with every member of Congress and every member of the House and Senate and give them a good talking to. Because <laughs> if they would listen, if I, only they would listen. <laughs> I feel like you. I feel like you have it down, Pat. Like I feel like you see the situation so clearly that if only they would read your new book, "The Five Rules of the Master Herder," the Senate Majority and Minority Leadership could really snap some people out of it. A lot of the policies that they're bantering back and forth and arguing over are also unbalanced um, so that there's tends to be, you know, an overemphasis of the nurture companion role with the Democrats and an overemphasis of the dominant role on certain issues with Republicans or even the predator role. And so when that happens, we actually aren't even creating policies that are coming from a balanced perspective. We're just, you know, swinging back and forth between two opposites. And um, so, you know, 240 years ago or however long it was when we declared independence and started the United States and were promoting the idea of democracy, we had a whole bunch of people who had come from 5,000 years at least of a dominant submission paradigm where you have people who were used to being um, royalty coming over and interacting with people who used to be serfs or slaves. And none of these people have been balanced. We have not been able to engage the full potential of democracy because people don't have the skills yet. And it wouldn't take very long to get them. 
And we don't have to reinvent the wheel because master herders in these pastoral cultures had them down. And you can really see in organizations where I've taught uh, all when and how to use all five roles to, and people have been supported in learning some additional skills for how to work with conflict or how to deal with others who are attacking them in more productive ways. Um, when people get those skills, a lot of times the not just the behavior of the individual uplifts, but the behavior of an entire social system that understands these skills uplifts. So we've done the far past, the present in our discussion so far, and now I want to talk a little bit about the future. So you have a term in the book where you talked about the untapped human potential of modern tribes. So if you were the planner of a futuristic world, what would your vision look like for how we would tap into this untapped potential? Well, I think that it's helpful to recognize that learning to share power is the challenge of the 21st century. And we don't really know how to do that yet. Um, And so if every adult and teenager on their way to becoming an adult understood when and how to use all the five different roles. When that happens, it's so much harder for any one individual to take advantage of others. Um, And so, you know, bullies are actually less effective in that situation because people know how to stand up to them in a productive way that doesn't further incite violence from somebody who's overly aggressive. Um, Also, we have to think of bringing everything that we know together rather than saying, oh, let's throw out, you know, the the vision of the city because that's dysfunctional and let's go back to moving with large animals. That's not going to happen. So we can think more about adopting the social intelligence and leadership skills that were pioneered by our nomadic pastoral cousins while still valuing the technological innovations that really truly could only have been perfected in a sedentary context where you have supplies being brought to you and you're not out moving with animals, so you have time to experiment with making new technological innovations. And so here we would combine the best of both worlds, and I really think that is our destiny. Part of that, too, is recognizing that we live when we live in hyper-human situations where we don't have connection with nature or animals, we're doing ourselves a serious disservice. And we need to welcome nature and animals into our lives and let them be a part of affecting our future society so that that animals and nature are a regular a part of, of how we develop as human beings. One of my um, favorite things in the book, uh, so really quick, my favorite moment of the book where I laughed out loud is you describing the stories of your two dogs getting into fights. Yeah. Um, I was absolutely cracking up because I have two female terriers and they do nothing but look at each other and growl all day. It is hilarious. But anyway, so your dogs in the story really cracked me up. But you also, your close work with animals seems to have complicated how you see things like the American diet. Um, would you be willing willing, uh, willing to elaborate on your views about the American diet and how we see animals and what type of future you think that we may have with regards to meat and eating and things like that? Yes. One of the things that's interesting about the nomadic pastoral cultures is that they eat a whole lot less meat than we do. They mostly subsist on milk-related products. Um, And their wealth in their minds is directly connected to how many healthy living members of their herds of animals they have. They name all of their animals. If an animal is orphaned, they bring the children into their tents and they nurse them and then they turn them back out with the herd. And they actually are, they are truly repulsed by the idea of the way our sedentary cultures think that lamb and veal are delicacies. To them, that's eating children. And it's, it's abs- they, they cry when you talk about, there are instances of, of um, ethnologists going in 
to pastoral cultures and talking about lamb and veal production and having people cry when they hear this going on. So we, we actually have to have compassion for, for the animals who share our lives. And, you know, I'm not sure that the answer to, you know, never eating meat, these cultures don't really eat much meat at all. It uh, happens very rarely and usually for some kind of extreme special occasion. And there's usually a holy man who blesses the sacrifice of a single bull, let's say, for a special celebration. And during times of droughts, these cultures actually will become increasingly thin themselves with their increasingly thin animals. They're trying to keep everybody alive and together. There's a certain point at which you would have to keep life in balance with the available resources. If we have, you know, too many cattle and horses, um, things would get out of balance. But at the same time, um, we we have birth control options now, and we do fence our animals, and we can control their breeding. So we wouldn't be letting breeding get getting out of hand. If we stopped eating meat completely, what would happen to all of these animals? Um, would they just disappear? Would their genetic lines just disappear off the face of the earth? I don't know about that. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the ideas of of mutual support in interspecies settings means to the nomadic pastoralist that, yes, today maybe you do sacrifice a cow or a bull for the um, the sustenance of the tribe. And the next morning, you may lose your life protecting the rest of those animals with your life without reservation. And so here's where these ancient ideas of sacrifice and communion in the Judeo-Christian tradition, these are these were insights that were lived daily by the nomadic pastoralists. I protect these animals with my life, and tomorrow one of the animals may give his life for mine. And to have this this mutual respect and mutual engagement and mutual compassion where the humans are equal with the animals gives you an entirely different view of how you're cultivating food, how you're eating um, and how you're naming everybody and taking their, their needs into consideration as well. Thank you. It's such a complex view and I see so many people wrestling with the way that we eat. And I mean, I'm coming. I, I came with that question from a totally personal point of view. I've eaten a primarily plant-based diet now for like three years, and it's been a monumental shift in the way that I view the world. And I know that a lot of people wrestle with it, and a lot of people don't wrestle with it at all. But I think that it's important. So I just asked that question for totally selfish reasons. So thank you. Well, one of the things that I think has to stop is is factory farming. Yeah. Um. Because that is the, one of the cruelest institutions that has ever been created. And and also the eating of, of lamb and veal and, um, you know, the eating of young animals and, you know, over mass producing them for mass and often wasteful and dangerous meat consumption. Um, there, there are certain places where, you know, you really can't grow vegetables. And so grazing animals actually provide you know, milk and um, meat in a balanced way in a, in a place where, you know, you in the desert here, for instance, that's why you have a lot of um, cattle production here because cattle can move out and graze over vast distances eating food that would never nourish us. Um, and then if you try to grow vegetables in the desert in this kind of um, mm -hmm. land, which I've tried to do, the vegetables are not nutritious and they don't taste good. Um, and so there are certain ecosystems where, you know, working with animals can actually be, um, you know, a part of being immersed in that ecosystem and able to live and thrive in that situation. I just thought of uh, Barbara Kingsolver's fantastic animal, animal vegetable miracle book that she wrote where she was talking about trying to grow things in Tucson. Um, I was just cracking up thinking about that. Um, so, Linda, it has been an amazing pleasure talking to you. I love your book, The Five Roles of a Master Herder, and I'm looking forward to getting your other books. Uh, I think the next one I'm going to go for is The Power of the Herd. And I'm curious if you can just tell people where to find you and the rest of your work if they want to know more. 
yes, I have a website devoted to this particular work. It's it's masterherder.com. Um, and if you go to masterherder.com and you look at professional assessment, you can actually take the assessment that's in the book and it'll be calculated for you electronically. And you can also um, see some of the workshops that are coming up where we are offering um, equine experiential learning opportunities to practice these rules. Because when you can set boundaries with a thousand pound horse and deal with increasingly dominant horses, which we um, offer in some in some cases with people who want to practice that, then dealing with your highly dominant 200 pound boss or spouse or your you know, feisty teenage boy or girl is not such a big deal. And there's a lot of nonverbal things that you learn how to do to shift someone's aggression or disconnection into cooperation and engagement. And um, so coming to an equine facilitated learning program is really helpful. You don't have to have horse experience. All the work is done on the ground with horses. It's a fun way to learn. It gets you out in nature. And the horses themselves move people to tears sometimes just just by who they are. My other website is eponaquest.com. That's E, P as in Paul, O, N as in Nick, A, Q, U, E, S, T.com. There's even a wider variety of workshops there that um, exercise creativity and other kinds of techniques. Well, Linda, you are doing some really cool work, and I'm really glad that we got to have this conversation today. And thank you so much for taking an hour out of your day to talk to me for Classical Ideas. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Greg. Thank you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Stribing. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.